even for those used to the fearsome nature of battling Apaches, it was a gruesome scene. The body of a Sibiku Apache scout, who had fallen during a firefight the previous day, had been mutilated. His brother had managed to find the corpse the night before, and, through his grief and tears, had covered him with a blanket. When the army officers arrived the next day and that blanket was taken away, they found that the nose had been chopped off and a knife stuck through the face where the nose had been. Several men tried to dislodge the blade, but were unable to. It wasn't until their captain got there that he was finally able to pull the knife out of the man's skull. Everyone was sufficiently horrified, and the scouts were in tears about how far their foe had gone. The captain looked around at the scouts and his men and made a pronouncement. Quote, What the Chiricahua have done here is wrong. The other Chiricahua are all up at San Carlos in Fort Apache, but these Chiricahua down here, still on the warpath, will never go back to San Carlos or Fort Apache because they have done wrong on this body. End quote. Though he was obviously being dramatic, given the occasion, that pronouncement by Captain Wirt Davis while campaigning against the Chiricahua down in Mexico would actually prove in time to be amazingly prescient. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 105, Davis, Davis, and Davis. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we left off as the summer of 1885 saw months of hard campaigning by the U.S. Army and their Apache scouts in Mexico, but with little to show for it. Geronimo had been seen, but thanks to a loud mule, had managed to escape again. Chihuahua had also been nearly overcome, but he too managed to flee and exact a heavy vengeance on Americans and Mexicans alike. Remember that he had even swung up into Arizona in a misguided attempt to reach Fort Apache, before eventually being forced south of the border again. After swinging back into Mexico, his trail was picked up by Captain Wirt Davis, the head of one of the two armies being sent after the Chiricahua, and also the second U.S. Army officer named Davis to take a prominent role in our story. So on August 30th, 1885, Davis and his men were able to find one of Chihuahua's abandoned camps in the mountains west of the junction of the Bavispe and Yaqui Rivers, which sits on the western slopes of the Sierra Madres directly south of the Arizona-New Mexico state line. Davis and his men now had to predict where Chihuahua and the small cadre with him, it was only like a dozen men, maybe one woman, and a couple of boys, would head next. Chihuahua appears to have realized that there were two armies in Mexico hunting the Chiricahua, so he decided to head west across the Mexican state of Sonora. But despite being mercilessly hunted, laying low is never something that the Chiricahua do and the ranches and haciendas of Sonora were too tempting a target for Chihuahua, who, as I mentioned last episode, was sort of mad with rage at this point. Over the next couple of weeks, Chihuahua struck American and Mexican establishments left and right, leaving behind a trail of wounded or killed civilians. 
On September 18, 1885, his group spied five Americans, four men and a woman, who were en route to a mining claim and had a mule train of supplies for just that purpose. The Apache never could resist such a target, so they swooped down and began firing. Two of the American men quite literally ran for it, abandoning their friends and equipment. The remaining men, wielding shotguns and Winchesters, returned fire. When one of these two was cut down by Chiricahua bullets, the woman of the party ran forward, unbuckled his cartridge belt, grabbed his fallen Winchester and shotgun, and began firing at the Apache herself. There was no way I was going to skip over such a cinematic and awesome incident, so now I have to apologize because this woman's name was Belle Davis, because what this story really needed was one more person named Davis. Oh, and the remaining man with her? Her husband. So there is yet a fourth Davis floating around out there now. The Davises were able to fall back to a defensible position behind some rocks, and rather than storm an entrenched position and fearing that the Americans that had run off would call for reinforcements, Chihuahua ended the fight and rode off. The next day, Captain Davis would encounter the Davises, who originally mistook his scouts for hostiles and tried to run away. Once Captain Davis called out to them that they were friendly American forces, he heard the whole story from Mrs. Davis, who was still wearing the cartridge belt and wielding the shotgun from the day before. Captain Davis and his men helped bury the dead and gathered up any scattered supplies for the Davises before saying their goodbyes and speeding after Chihuahua. On September 22, 1885, or several days after Davis met the Davises, an advanced group of scouts located Chihuahua and Nightshade's camp in the El Tigre Mountains, which is near where they had found Geronimo's vacant camp a couple months earlier. A firefight ensued which dragged on for hours, the only fatality being that Sibiku scout we started today's episode with, who'd gotten too close to a group of concealed Chiricahua. In something of a fun twist, I guess, the only other casualty was a Chiricahua scout nicknamed Speedy who was shot in the leg. Speedy was actually a nephew of Chihuahua, and a couple years earlier was the man that was so angered at his mother being killed after their camp had been found by crook scouts that he had murdered young Charlie McComas. Do you remember that? What a difference just a few years make. By nightfall, it was apparent that the Chiricahua had managed to get their women and children away and would probably just flee themselves. But then a solitary voice called out from their position, which turned out to be Chihuahua. He cried out simply, quote, we have killed one Bine-e-Dine already, end quote. Bine-e-Dine, or I think that's how it's pronounced, is just the Chiricahua name for the White Mountain Apache. Despite everything, Chihuahua was defiant as ever and more than willing to keep on fighting. As his voice rang out, one of Davis's scouts, who was a relative of the chief, recognized him and responded with his own shout, saying that they didn't want to fight him, but they wanted to be friends again. And Chihuahua actually took him up on this, calling for him to meet on a nearby bluff. The scout rushed to Davis to request a horse to go, but the captain refused, fearing it was a trap to ambush and kill this man, which was not an unreasonable fear. 
But this right here sets Captain Davis apart from Crook. Had the general been there, he most likely would have done anything to extend the olive branch to the Chiricahua and end the conflict once and for all. But Crook wasn't there, and Captain Davis didn't have the same sort of understanding and trust with his scouts, and so he potentially missed out on a good chance to actually talk with Nightshade and Chihuahua. But also, like I said, there was a good chance that Chihuahua would simply have killed this man anyway, so we'll never know. What we do know is that when this scout didn't show up at the bluff as requested, the two chiefs took it as another sign that the Americans talked a good game, but would never actually follow through, which is not an unreasonable conclusion for them to draw. So they gave the signal to once again disappear into the mountains. We were going to leave Captain Davis there with the body of his fallen scout, and now turn our attention back more than a month to Lieutenant Britton Davis, shortly after the attack on Geronimo's camp on August 7th. We'll get into what Geronimo was doing later, but what's important now is that Captain Emmett Crawford sent Lieutenant Davis, Mickey Free, Chato, and other scouts after him. They departed under a heavy rain which slowed them down considerably and would not let up for a full five days. A couple of my sources say that the Chiricahua came to believe that this unearthly downpour had actually been brought on by Geronimo, because bringing rain was also apparently part of the power he possessed. The trail they followed went over some incredibly rugged terrain, up into the Sierra Madres where mountain peaks reach more than 8,000 feet elevation. If it wasn't for the mules with them, it's doubtful they could have kept following the trail for as long as they did, stymied as they were by both the geography and the weather. The rain finally cleared on August 18th, but now there was a different problem. Davis and his company were starting to run low on food. What follows is a largely regrettable incident that shows some of the disconnect between Mexico and the United States, despite the agreement allowing U.S. soldiers to chase Apache throughout Sonora and Chihuahua. Because Crawford had given Davis permission, in case his ration should fail, to take and kill some Mexican cows to feed his men. You know, he was supposed to give the owners a receipt so that the army could reimburse them, of course. Unfortunately, a Mexican herdsman saw the theft, but all he saw were the Apache scouts. Figuring the ranch was being raided like every single other ranch had been, he quickly spread the word and a force of mostly Tarahumara Indians raced out to confront those who would dare steal Mexican cattle. But they didn't actually find Davis and his men. Instead, they found the trail of a whole different company. Crawford had worried that Davis would run out of supplies, so he sent a pack train under a man named Lieutenant Charles Elliott to find and resupply Davis. Elliott and his group were maybe a day behind Davis's, and Mexican forces laid an ambush for them in a canyon that they would have to pass through. But a coming storm pulled Elliott's forces to an early stop. As they were securing their supplies to wait out the storm, the air erupted around them in gunfire. Elliot and his scouts had to hide behind some nearby rocks as the Mexican forces advanced, firing willy-nilly at them. The scouts started to return fire until Elliot commanded them to stop. 
Then, waving a white flag, he stepped out of his hiding spot and proclaimed that he was an American officer and a friend with a group of Apaches Mansos, or tame Apaches. Apparently, one of the Mexicans called out, Esta bueno, or it's all good, it's okay, or all right, but then another commander ordered yet another round of gunfire. Elliot was incredulous, both that they would keep firing on him and that not one of them managed to actually hit him. He managed to get a Spanish-speaking packer to join him so they could clear up this whole mistaken affair and everyone could get on with their lives. But, as always, it seemed like Mexicans were constitutionally incapable of not scheming when Apache were involved, because just as Elliot thought things were looking calm and the whole thing had blown over, the Mexicans suddenly leveled their guns at his chest again. With this bit of leverage, they commanded him to tell all his scouts to come out from hiding and throw down their weapons, or they would kill him on the spot. The scouts only did so with great reluctance. The Apache hate Mexicans, and vice versa. Plus, these Mexicans had clearly been drinking before confronting the group. Still, everyone was tied up and forced march toward the nearby town of San Buenaventura. En route, they were met by a force of the regular Mexican army, but the commander was dubious of Elliot's story, so he force-marched them through the town to the jeers, taunts, and howls of a mob that had formed, before locking them all up in the local jailhouse. Meanwhile, two of the scouts with Elliot had managed to escape being captured, and they sped along immediately to inform Lieutenant Davis of the situation. As soon as word spread through Davis's camp about what had happened, the scouts immediately started loading their weapons and stripping off their clothes, all preparations they made when they went to war. This was just another in a long series of insults thrust upon their people by the Mexicans, and they were ready to hunt them all down, kill as many as possible, and then head back to the United States. Only some strong persuasion from Chief of Scouts Al Sieber and Lieutenant Davis finally talked them down from that murderous cliff. But Lieutenant Davis had his forces immediately set out for where Elliot had been captured. Once he had seen the place for himself, he decided to head to San Buenaventura alone and try to talk his way out of this mess. Sieber was commanded to keep the scouts in line, and importantly, at that spot, while Davis went to do this by himself. It was rough going for the young lieutenant, as it was now nighttime, and the storm that Elliot had been worried about now hit, with the clouds and rain making it nearly impossible to see. What followed next is the second action movie sequence of this episode, after Mrs. Davis grabbing the rifle from the dead man and firing on the Apache. Because halfway to town, Davis was met by four Mexican men on horseback. They seemed hostile, and he tried to explain who he was and his mission, but what made the most impact was a flash of lightning that briefly illuminated the whole desert. The Mexican men suddenly became terrified of something they had seen behind the lieutenant, and when Davis turned, in the quickly fading afterglow of the lightning, he caught sight of ten scouts, including Chato, stripped down and armed to the teeth. Just imagine that one scene done with some modern special effects. It must have looked so darn cool. Chato explained that they had thought Davis might need help, so they had actually stolen away from Sieber to provide some much-needed backup. 
Incredibly thankful, Davis sent two of them back to tell Seaber and the rest of the army to come to San Buenaventura in the morning. Meanwhile, Davis, Chato, the remaining scouts, and the Mexican men went straight into town, where Davis's command of the Spanish language allowed him to clear up the whole misunderstanding. And the fact that he paid for the cows probably helped a lot with that. Davis took the whole incident in stride, but Elliot and the scouts were fuming. A few days later, after being informed of the situation, Captain Crawford made it a point to march through San Buenaventura and apparently had a rather loud meeting with the military officials there. Later, a Mexican official would ride into Crawford's camp with a detachment and order the captain and his men to leave Mexico immediately. Crawford then came back with that age-old retort for whenever someone issues an ultimatum. Make me. It was a tense couple of days, but ultimately the Mexicans had to back down. This was just another example of how the Mexican government was only sort of kind of cooperating with the American offensive. It's easy to sympathize with them, however, as this was their country and their history with the Apache went back centuries more than the Americans. Mexican policy toward the Apache was always one of subterfuge and extermination, however, so the use of Apache scouts never really sat well with them. Though, and I didn't mention this at the top of the episode, a Mexican commander actually rode into Captain Ward Davis's camp during August of 1885 and asked to borrow some scouts. However, the scouts refused to go with the Mexican military because, as I've said time and time again, Mexicans and Apache hate each other. It was also Mexican obstructionism that led Lieutenant Davis to head back to the United States and ultimately out of our story altogether. Shortly after the incident at San Buenaventura, Davis and his company were visited by a Mexican force. The commander of these soldiers said that two other Mexican commands were hot on the trail of the Chiricahua ahead of Davis and his men. According to the treaty signed between the U.S. and Mexico, American troops had to return to their own country should the Mexicans be in advance of said American troops. The treaty also stipulated that the Americans could continue pursuit if the Mexicans consented, but in this case, the Mexican commander made it clear that they were definitely not consenting. By this point, I have to think Davis didn't care. He frankly admitted that he relished the Mexicans' decision because, in his words, quote, we were practically at the end of our rope, end quote. They'd spent more than two months campaigning, and all they had to show for it was being dirty, hungry, and tired, having spent their days either navigating the incredibly steep and rugged Sierra Madres or slogging through harsh monsoon storms that dumped more and more rain on them. Of course, getting out of Mexico wasn't going to be a picnic either. They were 100 miles southeast of El Paso at this point, which meant a grueling march over the desert to get to the nearest American town. This march turned out to be one of the most demanding parts of the entire campaign, as their stock, rations, and even moccasins would give out before they were through. It was a shabby-looking assembly of men that finally reached Texas on September 5, 1885. Davis and Chato had kept 
everyone together through the entire hardship, and they were met with a whole town of people who couldn't believe that not only had they crossed from Sonora into Chihuahua over the Sierra Madres, but they had then crossed the desert after that. And it's here that we must part with Lieutenant Davis. While in El Paso, he just happened to run into an old friend of his father's, who ran a conglomeration that owned a hacienda in northern Chihuahua. The hacienda's manager had just quit, so Davis was offered the job. And tired after the last two years of being a de facto Indian agent and the most recent grilling campaign, Davis was ready for a change. He accepted the position and resigned from the army. When Crook found out, he played the mom card. He wasn't angry. He was disappointed. He begged Davis to reconsider, but the young officer was done with all of this. He got his men back to Fort Bowie as ordered, but after tying up loose ends, he was gone. For Crook, who ran his operation through trusted subordinates, it was a heavy blow. Aside from being an energetic, intelligent, bilingual young officer, Davis knew the Apache. He knew the scouts, and he had managed to build a relationship with some of them. Plus, he knew Crook, and could be counted on to do his job. The anti-Crook press also seized on Davis's departure, writing that Crook had forced the young lieutenant out, without ever really explaining why or how they came to such a conclusion. Now, I won't put Davis in the same category as Crawford, who was nigh indispensable to Crook, and the young man's somewhat shaky relationship with the Apache helped pave the way for the breakout at Turkey Creek. But overall, he had done his job ably. If you too find yourself missing him, the good news is that he'll pop up once more in a cameo appearance before the year is out. Davis's resignation was the end cap to a busy summer for Crook. Not only was he still trying to direct two columns attacking hostile Apache in the rugged desert of another country, but he was trying to figure out how to win the peace as well. As I mentioned last week, Crook had set his sights on getting rid of the dual control policy that had awkwardly shared the San Carlos reservation between the War Department and the Interior Department. This pressure, in addition to some continual problems up at San Carlos, convinced the upper-ups in Washington to cave. On August 1st, 1885, the Interior Department dismissed Agent Charles Ford and appointed Captain Francis Pierce as acting Indian agent. Two weeks after that, President Grover Cleveland made that order official. With surprising ease and alacrity, Crook had gotten his way. However, trouble was already starting to brew on the horizon. Crook was not very happy with Colonel Luther Bradley, his counterpart in New Mexico, whom he considered slow to act and inattentive to details. But who he really disliked was Bradley's superior, General Nelson Miles, who oversaw the Department of the Missouri, which had jurisdiction over the District of New Mexico. Miles and Crook were rivals for promotions, and the latter was one of those beating the drums loudly that Crook relied too heavily on Apache scouts, whose true loyalties, or at least he claimed, were suspect. 
It should be said that Miles was ambitious and had a grating personality that rubbed many the wrong way, but he was politically connected, and the endless war with the Apache had not done Crook's reputation any favors. So, Crook tried to kill two birds with one stone. He petitioned for the military district of New Mexico to be split off from the Department of the Missouri and grouped with Arizona. It made logical sense, as the Apache were in equal danger to Arizona and New Mexico, and having to go through two chains of commands was slowing things up. The other benefit for Crook would be that he wouldn't have to deal with Miles at all, which was something that he could definitely live with. But while blasting Miles and taking his own knocks in the press, Crook was also thinking about the larger issue of the Chiricahua. He knew the only way to quote-unquote win this conflict was through a Chiricahua surrender. Otherwise, it would be a bloody Vietnam-esque slog to try and exterminate them in their own remote country that would just chew up American soldiers. And they would definitely fight until the last man was killed. But Crook also knew they would not agree to surrender unless terms were offered. The current U.S. policy for the war was simple. If any Apache resisted, then they were to be killed. If they surrendered, then they had to be thrown into the jailhouse. During September, Crook told his superiors that all those Apache that had raided, pillaged, and killed would be turned over to a jury for trial. But this solution was not ideal either. Lawyers were telling Crook that it could be virtually impossible to collect evidence to pin any individual Apache with any specific crime in an actual court of law. I think the lawyers were right when it came to logistics. After all, it's not as if ranchers fleeing for their lives were keeping notes on exactly which Apache was chasing them. But at the same time, it's not like courts in the Old West were known for being sticklers for little things like proper evidence and the law. Crook ended up making a move that he knew would be unpopular everywhere. He told his superiors that the Chiricahua would either die fighting or they would surrender if they could be promised their lives. They could, however, be removed from Arizona. And here's the crux of the matter. Because, as we have said a few times now, the U.S. government was always interested in pushing unwanted Amerindian tribes into some corner somewhere. The brass in Washington was faced with a decision now. Because a report had just come across their desk from an Indian inspector that all of the peaceful Chiricahua should be removed from San Carlos and taken to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The inspector had come to this recommendation because, despite the fact that all the men were gone to fight Geronimo in Mexico, he believed that the renegade chief was still somehow communicating with the reservation and that the Chiricahua still at San Carlos would spontaneously rise up if asked. Basically, he made Geronimo out to be like some mafia boss ordering hits from his prison cell. Thankfully, the upper-ups in Washington thought this was a particularly dumb idea. The final decision from General Philip Sheridan, chief of the army, came back rejecting this proposition, but did declare that, quote, the hostile Chiricahua have forfeited their lives by their outbreak and savage acts of butchery and deserve no consideration whatsoever, end quote. 
Furthermore, Sheridan authorized Crook to secure their surrender, if possible, as prisoners of war, and for them, quote, to be transported to some distant point, as were the criminal Comanches and Cheyennes from the Indian Territory in 1875. They should never be allowed to return to Arizona or New Mexico, end quote. When Secretary of War William Endicott received Sheridan's plan, he accepted it, but added two new provisions. First, that any surrender must include all the hostile Chiricahua. None of this, it was the other guys that attacked you nonsense. Secondly, he fixed the corner of the rug the hostile Chiricahua would be swept under as Fort Marion, Florida. And just like that, Geronimo's future home was named. Crook now had his conditions that he could take to the Chiricahua, but he still had to track them down and make them listen to this offer. And it was also now time for him to concentrate on something even more urgent. Countering Geronimo. The wily renegade had proven to be stubbornly hard to nail down, and seizing on rumors that Geronimo had been wounded during the attack on his camp at Bugaseca, Crook actually thought there was a chance he might have died, which was a lot of wishful thinking on his part. Because, in case he wasn't, which was both more likely and reality, Crook had to be prepared to find and seize him. To Crook, and really the whole country, Geronimo was the very symbol of Chiricahua resistance, and the Apache Wars would only be truly over once he was in shackles or dead. As for his current whereabouts, we last saw Geronimo abandoning his wives and child back on August 7th, 1885, when the White Mountain Scout Bylas and his forces nearly surrounded his camp. Since then, he was last seen fleeing north, and all our groups have been so busy dealing with other Apache or Mexicans that they haven't gotten within a few days of him. But now Geronimo will boldly assert himself once again, which will bring he and Crook one step closer to their final encounter. So join me next week as Geronimo decides that it's high time he once again rode freely throughout New Mexico and Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.